0: Good evening. It's great to be with you all this evening. It's hard to believe that uh, we're now uh, within 24 hours of our, our last um, time together uh, tomorrow night. It, it has truly been my privilege and, and pleasure to be here with you all to get to know um, some of you all to be able to uh, have some conversations and and just see your heart. Uh, I can tell uh, just in the brief amount of time that I've been here that you all truly love each other, uh, you love your church, you care about uh, your uh, your town, your city, um, and, and it's it's certainly been a, a welcomed privilege for me to be a part of your all's community for uh, just a few days. Um, we'll certainly uh, go back with a special place in my heart for you all and, and we'll continue to pray for your church. Um, this evening we're talking about... Um, Sola Scriptura, uh, the doctrine of Scripture alone. Now, I had said, I believe, on Sunday morning that this doctrine actually is the precursor to the others. Uh, because ultimately, the the first and foremost um, cause of the Reformation itself was concerning uh, the Scriptures and what place the Scriptures had uh, in, in the life of the church. And so... Um, alongside Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, uh, justification by faith alone, uh, these two doctrines went hand in hand. But the doctrine of Sola Fide was was really contingent upon the doctrine of Scripture. Um, what is this book that we hold in our hands that God has given us? And so, uh, working out grace and faith and Christ and God's glory uh, came upon understanding the the scriptures that God had given us the revelation that God had given and so um we're we're hitting it here uh, primarily because of uh the the way that it's uh typically talked about grace faith Christ scriptures God but uh, probably the more proper order would be scriptures and then everything else because everything else is contingent upon this word that we hold in our hands and, and the issue in Rome, the issue for the Reformers, concerned authority. Um, I'm not going to talk tonight about inspiration, uh, inerrancy, you know, inspiration uh, that the Scriptures of God breathe inerrancy, that they are without error, infallibility. Um, it actually trumps all of that. That would be the umbrella that God's Word is, uh, is going to accomplish God's purposes. Isaiah Uh, That the Word of God, like the rain that goes out, does not return void. It accomplishes all that God has purposed. Uh, You could say that that's the the doctrine of infallibility for the Word. Um, But the issue that was front and center for Martin Luther was the issue of authority. Um, and, And for the church in Rome, they said that yes, we need the Scriptures, but like you've seen this common theme, yes, we need grace, yes, we need faith, yes, we need Christ, yes, we need the Scriptures, but the church stands alongside the scriptures. So not under the scriptures or even on top of as the foundation of the scriptures, but alongside. And so the scriptures are the scriptures because we say they are. Now, the way that this uh, plays itself out today, and I've, I've talked to many, it's, it's uncanny for me how many people have this, this understanding concerning the Bible. You especially see it. This is a primary argument for those who would deny the authority of the Scriptures. The primary place of arguing, if they don't say, well, these thing, this thing's just made up anyway. It's like a, a John Grisham novel. You know, It reads like a good story. Um, if you can get even beyond that with people to say, you know, there is something unique, something distinct about this book, they would say, yes, but... Didn't a bunch of men sitting around in the 4th century decide what books were going to be in the Bible? You know, wasn't this, uh, this a decision that a collective group of guys, and then usually when you start to hear that argument, they'll attach to that who were wanting to control the people, who were wanting to have a power play, were they not the ones that selected what books were going to get in and which books were not? Because the 66 books that you have, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, um, they weren't the only books written. In fact, uh, you'll remember a couple years ago, the headlines were all over the place about the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Thomas uh, that were making, making their way around uh, social media, uh, certainly our, our contemporary media. we saying, well, yes, we, we have these discoveries, there's, a, there's other Gospels how come the Gospel of Thomas didn't make it into our Bible? How come the Gospel of, of Judas didn't make it into our Bible? Those are important questions. I, I don't know if you all have ever been faced with that from naysayers or antagonists concerning the authority of, of this book that we hold in our hands, but that's something that the church needs to be prepared to answer concerning those, those questions. Again, this is much more than I, I intend to unpack um, tonight. But uh, these are all the things that, uh, that Luther was up against is how do we know what we know concerning the Bible and on whose authority? That's the question, on whose authority? Uh, my little girls, I, uh, I will spank them, not probably as often as they need, um, but often enough. Um, and I've got a couple Bible passages in my back pocket for that one, you know, sp- spare the rod, spoil the child. Um, Folly's bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod drives it far from them. That's my favorite. Um, I, I, will, I, will, <laughs> I will discipline my kids um, occasionally. Uh, we discipline them often, but occasionally with the spanking. Um, one of the things that, that I... Man, this is getting recorded too. I might end up with CPS at the house. Um, <laughs> occasionally, um, when that happens, I'm emphasizing occasion. <laughs> That's for the people that are listening on the podcast. Um, what I will do is I, I never spank them without having a conversation with them. Uh, several years ago, I read a book by um, Ted Tripp called um, Shepherding a Child's Heart. And, and he talked about discipline as a, a means of correcting your child, not punishing your child. That, that made a, a huge difference in my understanding concerning discipline uh my parents were great people my father was a good man but we did not want to tick him off because he came with the wrath he he came to punish and one of the things that trip talked about is that um our discipline is to correct to correct to teach not not to punish because um one it's not my ego that's ultimately been hurt it's not me that's ultimately been offended it's it's the lord and so God disciplines, Hebrews 12, those He loves. And in fact, that's how you know that you're a child of God, is that He will discipline you because He's a good Father who loves you. And so in disciplining my girls, I make sure that I don't do that when I'm angry. Now, if they've they've done something, they've rebelled, they've clearly uh, broken something that we've told them not to break as far as don't do this and they do, uh, or do this and they don't. And then it gets to the point where it's time for that. I always sit down with them. And I have a conversation with them. And it usually goes something like this. And we'll address the, the specific issue. Um, do you know um, why I'm going to spank you? And, and they'll usually say yes. And then we'll talk through that. And I always say the same thing to them. I always say, I, I, I want you to know uh, that I am not angry at you. I love you. I, I'm not angry. Uh, I, I want you to know that. Um, but I'm under authority. And the authority that I'm under is God's authority. God has given me to you and you to me. And a a big part of that is for me to teach you about Him. And so if I were not to hold true to my word, I, I told you if you don't do this, I'm going to spank you. And if I were not to hold true to my word, it would be a terrible picture of God who holds true to His word. And so I'm under authority. And because of that, you're under authority as well. And that's one of the most important things that I can teach you about the Lord is that we're under His authority. And so then I'll, I'll spank them and then we have, you know, cuddle time and, and that's usually the time that they're most receptive. They'll always crawl up in my lap and we'll, we'll talk some more and then pray together. And that's, that's usually how um, discipline goes in our family. But that principle of being under authority is what is preeminent concerning the Scriptures. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Now, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, but we're going to come back and we're going to spend all of our time in verse 21. And I want to talk about three things um, quickly tonight. So, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. "...the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins." It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So if you go back to verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That is, revealed apart from the law. Although, and this is the, the, the comma that Paul writes in here, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the question then is, what is the it there at the end of verse 21? And the it refers back to the righteousness of God that has been manifested apart from the law. So then Paul tells us, you know, before we go on too far, the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, but although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the three points here this evening is that God displays His righteousness In His Word, God displays, puts on display His righteousness in His Word. So then we are to read our Bibles the way that Jesus read His, and the way that Paul read His, and the way the Apostles read theirs. We are to read our Bibles with Jesus at the center. And then lastly, we are to trust God to use our Bibles to read us. So let me explain that for us this evening. Um, As Rome had said that the church stands beside and determines ultimate authority along with or in addition to the Scriptures. When the Pope spoke ex cathedra from from the chair, it was authoritative on par with the Scriptures. Uh, Now if you think that that sounds a little bit kooky, uh, the Mormon church today uh, has essentially the exact same teaching. Uh, The Mormon church today would tell you that the uh, apostles um, that are absolutely as authoritative as the the twelve apostles in Jesus' own time, that when the apostle of the Mormon church, the LDS church today, speaks, it is as authoritative and more so than the Scriptures. And the reason why there's the more so, even for the Mormon church, is one of the fastest growing religions in the United States is because their prophets, their, their apostles, are contemporary. They're 21st century. And so if God is still speaking through those apostles uh, in the Mormon church, then it's more authoritative because it's, it's new. It's current. It's, it's the present. It's here and now. So if it, if it sounds a little bit crazy to us and to our ears that the Pope, when he spoke ex-cathedra from the chair, it was bonding, it was authoritative, uh, there are, are groups today that believe the same thing. And the way that this actually kind of creeps into the evangelical church, which is, comes in the form of God told me. And, and God told me. So, we will say things and say that this is absolutely authoritative for me, maybe not for you, but certainly for me, because God told me. Now, I, how do you argue against that with somebody well god told me to do this uh, i've met people that have told me god told me to divorce my spouse well, god god told me i had a friend in college that would always ask a girl out and he would say god told me that that we you know need to go out and then when he was ready to broke, break up with her god told me it's time to leave my like, man god's not a god of confusion which is it together or not and, and this comes down to the Scriptures, the, the authority of the Scriptures that God will never speak contrary to what He has spoken and that through His Word. And God displays His righteousness in His Word. Now, we haven't quite got into um, explaining fully this, this understanding of righteousness, of, of the doctrine of God's righteousness, but you could say shorthand, God's righteousness is His rightness. Now that sounds a little bit circular or redundant, but it is, it is this understanding that what God says, what God thinks, what God does is right because God says it, thinks it, and does it. He is His own standard for His own righteousness. He doesn't answer to me and, and you for that. Uh, he doesn't seek our counsel. Man, what do you think here? It's, it's that He is perfectly right in and of Himself. Now, several years ago, so the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Several years ago, there was a debate between uh, the deceased Christopher Hitchens, who was one of the four horsemen of modern atheism. You had Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, um, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens. Uh, They were the most uh, well-written, articulate and, and thoughtful and, and aggressive atheist that um, the 21st century is probably known outside of Bertrand Russell. And Hitchens, a New York Times best-selling author, every time he wrote something, it went onto the New York Times best-selling list. And he wrote a book called The God Delusion. Um, no, I'm sorry, that was, uh, that was Dawkins. Uh, Hitchens' book was God is Not Great. And uh, the subtitle was How Religion, How Christianity Poisons Everything. Well, Hitchens and a pastor out in Moscow, Idaho, a guy named Doug Wilson, um, both responded to a Christianity Today um, article entitled, Is Christianity Good for the World? And Hitchens wrote into Christianity Today and said, absolutely not. Not only is Christianity not good for the world, but it poisons everything, subtitle of his book. Um, Wilson wrote in in response to Hitchens and said, yes, Christianity is good for the world. And their exchange in Christianity Today uh, at that time was the most uh, widely read uh, piece that Christianity Today did. And so they commissioned these guys to debate the topic. And they, they wrote a book together, Is Christianity Good for the World? And one of the things that Christopher Hitchens kept bringing up about Christianity was this idea of God's righteousness. Now here's where I'm going with this. And in their debates, he would often go to the, the killing of the Amalekites. And if you remember from the Old Testament, God had commanded his people, Israel, to, it was harem warfare, it was to leave no man, woman, and child or animal alive. Wipe them out from the face of the earth. And, and Hitchens would say to Wilson, how can you say that God is right, to command the wholesale slaughter of an entire people group. Now, that is, is another articulation of a problem that you and I um, are challenged with regularly from our unbelieving friends and family, is how can you say that there is a good God who's in all control and all power over His universe, and there's, there's evil in the world? how can you say that God is good and in control if there's evil in this world? That that is is the number one question I get from people challenging my faith and belief. So Hitchens in his own way is doing that. How can you say that God's good? How can you say that God's right? Wilson's response was so beautiful to Hitchens on this question. Maybe your minds are, are wondering now, how would I respond to that? And Wilson's response to Hitchens was, it's right because God said it. And then he would challenge Hitchens' own unbelief, his own atheism, and he would say, how can you say that it's wrong except by introducing categories of right and wrong? And as soon as you introduce categories of right and wrong, you are now getting into the Christian car to then try to drive it off the road. Because apart from Christianity, apart from God's revelation of telling us this is right and this is wrong, you have no ground to stand on. You have no foundation to call anything right or anything wrong. This in fact was one of the things that led C.S. Lewis to the Lord. Is he realized that his problem with evil was actually because he had a problem with evil. He, he, he realized, I should have no problem with evil because there's no category for it apart from Christianity. It just is. People die. People are wiped out. There's plagues. There's cancer. You know, It just happens. There's murder. But apart from some standard given us, who's to say? That it's not just the way things are. If the Titanic's going down, it doesn't matter if you mug him or hug him. That's the, the end is, is coming. And, and Lewis realized that, that, that to even have a problem with evil meant that he was presuming some standard. And this is the way that Hitchens was challenged by Wilson to say, God is the one who gives the standard. It, it's, it's God's world. And, and who are you to say that something is right or wrong? God's righteousness is His rightness. It's His standard of truth and beauty and goodness in all that He does. In all that He does. And His righteousness is on display through His Word. The righteousness of God has been revealed, has been manifested, apart from the law. Now, here in particular, Paul is talking about the righteousness that God gives to us. I'm not going to go back and rehash the last couple sermons. But he's talking here particularly to the righteousness that he gifts, that he bestows. So this righteousness is manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So God is displaying His standard through His Word, and now He gives us what we don't have in us as a gift, which is, Rightness, an ability to stand before Him and not be struck down for all that is wrong in us. The righteousness of God. In fact, um, Luther, who was an Augustinian monk, um, who was the, the forerunner to the Reformation, was preparing to preach a series of lectures at the University in Wittenberg on Romans. And he, he came to Romans 1 and he read... This passage. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God. This is one sixteen and 17. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. For in it, that is the Gospel, in it, the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther hated God. As an Augustinian monk, he went to confession all the time. And he would spend hours. In fact, those to whom he was confessing would say, Listen, you know, just deal with the big things. Like you're confessing so many of these these small, little, insignificant things. If you would really just concentrate on the big stuff of your life, you'd be so much better. And, And it ate at Luther. He would walk away. And immediately he would think of something that he forgot to confess. And and he spent hours trying to absolve himself through confession of his sins. And when he read that passage in Romans, he walked away hating God even more because he understood the righteousness of God as being God's righteousness under which he was condemned because he's right and I'm not. And in studying to preach and to teach on Romans one, he came across an, an old statement from the 5th century from Augustine. And it was almost like a throwaway that Augustine had written down in an obscure text concerning this passage. And Augustine said that the righteousness of God in which the, the, the righteous shall live by faith, in which the, those who have faith live by, is the righteousness that God bestows on us gives to us and luther said that when he read that it was as though the the gates of paradise were open to him and he walked through that was actually the beginning of the reformation that's where the seeds of the reformation were planted and so in 21 we read that this righteousness of god and this in context is the righteousness that god gives us is, is manifested, it's, it's made apparent, it's revealed through the law, and the law and the prophets bear witness to it. God's Word creates His church. It is not His church that creates the Word. So the church stands upon and underneath the Word of God. There's a a way to answer. Uh, I I wish we had time tonight to to talk about it when somebody says, well, wasn't this just a bunch of men um, who were coming up with the books that were in, the books that weren't, and they were power players trying to control. And the answer was absolutely not. The Scriptures self-authenticate. The Scriptures reveal themselves to be the very Word of God. And that, by the, the power of the Spirit, uh, and, and the church at Rome said that we are the ones, we stand outside and alongside the Scriptures. And, and Luther stood in this great cloud of witnesses, this great line of men um, and, and women through the centuries who had understood that this is the very Word of God because God's Word authenticates itself. God's Word reveals itself to be what it is. And God's Word creates us. God's Word changes us and so we're under it it's not up to us to say yay or nay it's us it's up to us to hear and to receive and to respond and to obey God's word creates the church the church doesn't create the word and so God's righteousness his standards and his standards of righteousness credited to us because of faith in Christ is put on full display in his word And so we read our Bibles with Jesus at the center. And this is so important for us because the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God. You can say that the righteousness of God personified is Jesus Himself. You know, Jesus in, in Matthew tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. Every jot and tittle. Those were the two smallest marks in the Hebrew alphabet. They were, they were actually little letter strokes. It would be like the little tip of, a, of an A that hangs below the line. And that, the jot and the tittle were the smallest parts. And Jesus said, I came to fulfill every jot and tittle, every part of the law. Every part of it. And so Paul, picking up on this in 2 Corinthians, says that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Jesus is the walking, talking, breathing, living, dying resurrected, ascended righteousness of God. And, and so the law and the prophets bear witness to it, to Him. And so this is the way, there's, there's a, a, a practical principle for us here concerning this doctrine of sola scriptura is that, that we read our Bibles with Jesus at the center. Now the Bible as the very Word of God authenticated by Himself, by His own Word, by His Spirit, drives us into this book. And, and, and Tom does not permit to tell about uh, men like uh, Wycliffe. Uh, men who were burned at the stake. Staking their very lives on this book. Realizing how precious it is. Because it is the, the deuce vox. It's a Latin term that means the very voice of God. That when we read these words, it is, it is God's voice speaking to us. That these, these are no mere words. This isn't just any old book. But this is the voice of God. This is the deuce Vox. This is when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Not to be trivialized. Not to be minimized. And, and what this book points us to who this book points us to is jesus do you remember this account in john chapter 5 when jesus is running up against the teachers of this book uh, the scribes and the pharisees and jesus says to those men in john five thirty nine, he says um, you search the scriptures now in in jesus context first century that would have been the canonized old testament Uh, The Hebrew Bible is composed of three things. The the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, There's a shorthand way of talking about that called the Tanakh. um, T, N, and a K. Uh, And and the Tanakh was the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The law, the prophets, and the writings. So that was the Hebrew Bible. So when Jesus says, you search the Scriptures, He's talking about that, that Hebrew text that His contemporaries would have had. You search the Scriptures, the Old Testament, for eternal life. He said, but you're missing it because the scriptures are about me. They're about me. If you flip over to Luke chapter 24, I've heard some say that this is the greatest Bible study the world has ever known. Written about in Luke 24. Now, if you look at verse 25, this is after Jesus has been raised from the dead, before his ascension, when he spent 40 days on earth with his disciples. In verse 25, Jesus says, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Him. Now go over to verse 44 and again you'll see Jesus said to them these are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and here you'll see the Tanakh the Torah law the prophets, Nevi'im, and the writings, the Psalms, the Ketuvim, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The way that Jesus read His Bible is the way that you and I are to read our Bible. With Jesus at the very center of it. You you might say, well, yeah, amen. Truly. Verily, verily. That's, That's great. But... We, we have such an individualistic, me centeredness uh, in, in so many facets of our life that infiltrate even into our understanding and reading of the scripture. And the way that it looks contemporarily in the church is that you, you hear stories that maybe you grew up with in Sunday school, um, like David and Goliath. And the way that that is, is turned is that, you know, we all face our giants. Might not be a. You know, a nine foot dude with a big long spear. But, you know, you certainly have a, a, a boss that's really just getting under your skin. And that's the giant in front of you. But man, if you just take your, your sling and not literally because you'd probably get arrested and fired. But, you know, whatever the sling. You know, and you go up against that giant that you're facing in your life. And you can, you can conquer him. But I would submit to you, when we, when we look at this text and we see it the way that Jesus saw it. Jesus is the better and true David. Jesus is the king. We talked about that last night. And if there were anybody in that story that you and I ought to identify with, it's certainly not David. It would be the guys standing on the hillside scared out of their gourd that had been challenged and had wilted because they knew that they were a defeated people. It it would be them for whom that this one, this representative, goes out and conquers the giant that they could not conquer and wins for His people a battle that they could not win for themselves. Th- those are the ones that we identify with. King David points us to King Jesus. Right? We, we, we read about the story about Jesus' disciples in a, in a boat on the Sea of Galilee during a, a tremendous storm. And, and we, we think of that story, well, we all have storms in our life that we have to face. That, that story made Jesus' disciples melt because they knew that they had zero control over the elements around them. Absolutely none. And they were terrified. Terrified. And they wake Jesus up. And Jesus calms the storm. Never before had those men seen that, and they knew that only God, only God can do that. Only God has the power over creation. Only He has ultimate control where we have none. And and that's, there's a way of reading our Bibles that are very me. And, And Jesus. Along with Paul, along with the disciples, along with the apostles, understood that this this book is ultimately not about me. The law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God. This book is about Him. And and, and that's the last point, uh, really going into that. Um, It's the, the segue here, is that we need to look to God. Trusting Him to use our Bibles to read us. Let me explain what I mean by that. So the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God. Um, God's law, there's, there's a way of understanding um, the use of the law. I mentioned two uses of the law the other night um, when we were, I, I think it was Sunday night. That the law was meant to show us the, the, the rightness of God. And it's also meant to show us, to teach us, to be an educator. Um, this is the way that Paul talks about it in, in Galatians. That the law teaches us, us. Paul says in Romans, in Romans 7, that apart from the law, we wouldn't know sin. So we look at God's righteous standards, and there we see where we don't match up. And so the law drives us to the gospel, the good news that the life that you should live and and didn't, and won't, I lived for you. And my life I give to you. And, and, and so in the law, we're driven to the Gospel. And then from the Gospel, we go back to the law. So we, we trust God to use our Bibles to read us. That in God's Word, we come under conviction for sin. In God's word, we're, we're held accountable. We're called to account for the sin in our life, and and as you sit here tonight, you know, particularly by the grace of God from His word, what your sins are. You know where you have broken Ephesians four twenty nine. Let no unwholesome talk, no unwholesome talk, come out of your mouth, but only what is good for the building up of the body, for the edification. So when was the last unwholesome word you spoke to your spouse? Or, or words that were not building up to your children? We read in here, Colossians 3.23, and everything that you do, work with all of your heart, as unto the Lord and not unto man. For from Him you will receive your reward. And then we, we face that and we see that, gosh, I, I have been bringing a terrible attitude into my workplace. I'm gritting my teeth right now thinking about getting up in the morning and having to be with my coworkers or with my boss. And, and I'm, I'm not bringing, as unto the Lord, all of my heart in everything that I do, including my vocation, including my work. And I, I could go on and on and on. God's Word reads us. And there we find Jesus. We find Jesus setting us free from the sin that has enslaved us. We see Him dying for our our terrible attitudes with our bosses. We see Him dying for our harsh words to our children. Our cutting words to our spouse. These are the things that Jesus died for for us. And we have forgiveness. So those harsh words, those cutting words, those tearing down words, that bad attitude, doesn't mean hell because Jesus has taken that for us. And now we're set free. This sets us free from the guilt and the shame. In gratitude to live for the Lord, Todd and I were talking yesterday. Uh, a beautiful illustration of this, um, true story concerning the building of the San Francisco, um, the Golden Gate Bridge over the San Francisco Bay, and and this was told to me. I, I looked it up to verify because it's such a powerful story. Um, I, I just came across it this year in February at a, at a marriage retreat. The speaker used this analogy concerning the law of God. And, and he said that um, prior to a net going up underneath the San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge, um, when they were building it across the bay, um, these steel workers, these bridge workers were falling off. There had been ca- numerous workers uh, that were going out across the beams and would fall off to their death. And so, uh, after a number of those incidences, uh, they put up a net underneath. And the question was asked, is do you think more people fell off before the net went up? Or after? And, and it would make logical sense that after. Because you would think that people with the security of knowing that if they fall, no big deal, they're going to be caught, that they would be more loose with their steps. And it's the exact opposite many more fell off before the net went up. And here's the reason why. It's because they were so concentrated on walking the beam before the net went up that that was the very thing that they were focused on. And in focusing on it, they were slipping and falling. And once they had the security of knowing that even if I fall, I'm safe, I'm saved, they took their eyes off the beam. They stopped focusing on, on that particular thing. And they started focusing on actually getting from here to there or the tasks at hand. And once they stopped focusing on it, they stopped falling. And, and where we've been set free from the curse of the law, it actually frees us to obedience. When, when we're focusing on all the things that we ought to be doing or all the things that we shouldn't be doing, that's the, that's the very thing that we're going to fall into. It's like the principle of somebody shooting a, a basketball. My wife is a basketball player. It's an uh, analogy that fits in our household. Is that if, if I were turning this way to shoot that way, I'm going to miss it. You, you turn and shoot in the direction that you want to make the goal. We're focused on the law. We're going to be breaking it left and right. We're focused, free from the law, on a life... Pleasing and worshiping and adoring and loving our Savior, we're actually going to look more and more and more like Him. And that's that's the very principle that Paul places out in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4 beholding Him, looking at Him, setting our eyes upon Jesus, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the other. And so if Jesus understood the Bible about Him and Paul says that the law and the prophets point to Him and the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law but the law and the prophets point to Jesus, then then where are we going to set our eyes upon Jesus? We set our eyes upon Jesus in God's very Word that reveals to us Jesus. You want to look more and more like Christ in your life and worship That comes through the Scriptures. That comes through this very book that is all about Him. There's a way for us to read this Bible to get a lot more information. To know a lot more things. To impress our friends. uh, To put on pretenses. uh, Painting ourselves as something that we're not. Especially in the context of the church. Paul addresses that. It's a, a life verse for me. 1 Corinthians 8. And Paul says to the one who thinks he knows, he does not yet know as he ought, because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, trust me, Paul was no um, anti intellectual. He prayed for the church, Colossians chapter 1, that your knowledge would grow, that your knowledge would increase with wisdom and discernment, so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul was no advocate for ignorance at all, but Paul was keenly aware that there is a spiritual pride and a self-righteousness that takes the things that we know and substitutes a, a living, loving, vibrant relationship with Jesus for our own intellectualism, for our own knowledge about Jesus. And so we come to this Bible, we come to this book, Sola Scriptura, as our our sole authority. God alone has the right and the ability to bind our conscience, to show us Him, to show us us. And so we we come to this. and, and, And we come to this book, not as any other book, but to know Him, and to love Him, and to worship Him where you and I may grow very very cold in our our relationship and walk with Jesus i would submit to do a couple things one would be to pray now I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 6. Paul writes this, Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, So, also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Who does the heavy lifting? Who's responsible? Who does the teaching? Who does the pointing? Who does the guiding? God Himself. And so, we come to this Scripture. And and this may be something you do already. I would certainly commend you to pray. that, That when you open up your Bible, pray and ask God to teach you. Humble yourself under His Word and seek His Spirit to guide you Don't approach this as any other textbook to to read and learn and glean information. But ask God a very simple prayer. This is Your Word. Lord, would You teach it to me? And would You change me? If you've grown cold in your walk with Christ, I implore you to open your Bible, seek God's face to teach you by the power of His Spirit, and read your Bible. Read it, and then read it again, and then read it again, and then read it again, and then read it again. Hebrews four twelve, the Word of God is alive. It's living and active, and it is sharper than any double-edged sword, and it cuts joints and marrow, heart and spirit, and it exposes us. It, it, it cuts through us. It cuts through the veneer. It cuts through the pretense. It cuts through the self righteousness. And it, and it opens us up before God. And that by his spirit working through his word. Pray and ask God to teach you and read your Bible. And the, the last thing here, in trusting God to use our Bibles to read us, is that what this world needs is God's Word, right? I mean, the problems that we are facing, I mean, they're many, they're complex, but I would say ultimately, we we have philosophically an authority issue. Take same-sex marriage as an example. Uh, One theologian, O. Palmer Robertson, has said there, there are three of the most natural laws that God instituted in His world before the fall. Marriage, Adam and Eve, man leaving father and mother to be cleaved to his wife. Sabbath, six days of creation, then a rest. And work, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the earth and subdue it and rule it. Cultivating the fields, naming the animals, caring for God's world. Uh, marriage, Sabbath, and work, natural laws. And in our society, for the first time in history, we have taken at least one of those, what is the most natural law under the sun, and we have redefined it. We've said, not this, but this. And, and the question is, on whose authority? On whose authority? And so what we have done is we have banned God from the public square, and we've said God has no part of our government because that's religion and, and we're trying to rule our people. And then the question you have to ask is on whose authority? Uh, Some Christians that I know argue and say that we ought not to try to legislate our morality. And my response to that is every legislation is legislated morality. Every law that's passed is legislated morality. The question is, whose morality? Who's to say this is good and this isn't? This is right and this isn't. All of our laws are that.